so nice to see everyone. Um, <clears throat> some of you are being creepiness. We're not able to see you. Rashmi, Prag- Pragyan, Shakshi, Jitesh, Gurdas, Mam. But anyway, <laughs> at least I can see some of you. So we have an exciting uh, part of the Bhagavatam we're going through now. Very, very interesting. And let us begin. We are on actually verse 35 of the first chapter of the fifth canto. And this just finishes uh, this section. The next verse, which is the last section of the first chapter, uh, uh, starts that next section. So, my dear king, a devotee who has taken shelter of the dust from the lotus feet of the Lord can transcend the influence of the six material waves, namely hunger, thirst, lamentation, illusion, old age, and death, and he can conquer the mind and the five senses. However, this is not very wonderful for a pure devotee of the Lord because even a person beyond the jurisdiction of the four castes, in other words, an untouchable, is immediately relieved of bondage to material existence if he utters the holy name of the Lord even once. And then Prabhupada picks up on that point in several places in the purport uh, where he says, not to speak of a sanctified devotee, even a chandal, an outcast who is untouchable, is immediately freed from material bondage if he utters the holy name of the Lord even once. Sometimes caste Brahman is argued that unless one changes his body, he cannot be accepted as a Brahmana, for since the present body is obtained as a result of past actions, one who has in the past acted as a Brahmana takes birth in a Brahmana family. Therefore, they contend without such a Brahminical body, one cannot be accepted as a Brahmana. Herein it is stated, however, that even a Vidura Pigata, a Chandala, a fifth-class untouchable, is freed if he utters the holy names even once. Being freed means he immediately changes his body. And Prabhupada even reinforces this more a little later where he says, this verse clearly says, Sajahati Bandham. He gives up his material bondage. The body is a symbolic representation of material bondage according to one's karma. Although sometimes we cannot see the gross body changing, chanting the holy name of the Supreme Lord immediately changes the subtle body. And because the subtle body changes, the living entity is immediately freed from material bondage. He goes on and on like that in this purport. Um, And of course, naturally, it's such an important point for members of the Krishna consciousness movement. I don't know how many of you on the call were born in Brahmin families, um, but um, even sometimes it's said that, you know, Kali Yuga flourishes by people born in Brahmin families who don't act Brahminically, <laughs> right? So just because we're born uh, in a Brahmin family, it doesn't automatically mean we're Brahmin by any stretch of the imagination, although it's a good start, just like uh, Prabhupada would say that someone who's um, born and uh, whose father is a high court judge doesn't make him a high him or her a high court judge but it may be easier because they're around you know the judicial system as a child right so maybe some attraction there but certainly not necessarily so so for us whether we were born whatever birth we were taken we, we've taken um it's the real challenge is to act in such a way that we have these brahminical qualities which are very similar to Vaishnava qualities. So um, 
you know, we can study carefully the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, Sama tamas tapas ocham shantir arjabam evacha gyanam vigyanam astikyam brahma karma svabhavacham that uh, peacefulness, self-control, austerity, purity, tolerance, honesty, knowledge, wisdom, and religiousness. Um, these are the qualities of work for a brahmana. So, so although the potential is there in Prabhupada and, and Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur emphasize so much the potential, it's still incumbent upon us to realize that potential. <laughs> so that's the real trick. Uh, and not to get caught up too much in our birth. It's not that birth doesn't mean anything. You know, like in the Vedic culture uh, or in the Mahabharata, for example, right? Uh, even though Karna has, you know, equal if not better uh, archer, um, archery expertise in Arjuna, uh, because people thought he was born in the family of a uh, chariot driver, he was like, meh. Right until, of course, he showed his his, his abilities. Um, so you know, if anyone wants to say, oh, "Well, how do you find out?" You know, do you need to go through past life regressions to find out what you were in your last life? Well, right now you can just kind of look in a mirror, and you can get some idea of what you were in your last life because we don't get this birth by by chance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some thoughts on this point. Your 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 last point in the purport um, is such a it, it, it's so illuminating that um, Prabhupada is uh, stressing faith because he's saying uh, once chanting Hare Krishna the subtle mind uh, the form changes but we don't when we look at when we materialists look at the gross body, the gross body doesn't seem to be changing. And so that uh, implies a, an emphasis that uh, we have to accept the Shastra version and not our own senses. Yeah, yeah, uh, right, very good. And, and also um, we understand that there's a quality to that chanting. Right, that's that's of course uh, you know we just say okay, Hare Krishna. Oh, I did it once, finished. Right. <laughs> um, uh, in other words, like in the Hari Bhakti Vilas, it says um, the holy name is the eternal fruit of transcendental knowledge of the tree of the entire scriptures. Oh, oh, Brigumuni, if anyone chants Lord Krishna's name just once without offense, whether he chants with faith or indifference, the holy name immediately liberates him. And so. There is a quality to that chanting, quality as Prabhupada said, like a child calling out for his mother. But the um, one of the offenses in chanting the Holy Name is considered this, uh, the, the glories that are mentioned, the, the power that is ascribed to the Holy Name as imaginary. Because it's abhinavam namino, it's non-different from Krishna. So all the power that Krishna has, the Holy Name has. And so, you know, just a plenary portion of a portion of Krishna universes come out of the pores of his body as Mahavishnu, right? That's, and that's not as powerful as Krishna himself. So um, that's our faith. Our faith is certainly not in ourselves, but our faith is that uh, the Holy Name can purify us. 
Other thoughts? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Raghunath Prabhu. Um, while I was growing up in India, I had many friends who were born in uh, Brahmana families, and some of them were even Sri Vaishnavas. So generation after generation, they have been uh, worshipping Narayan or Vishnu or Krishna Rama forms. Right. What I found is the process that Srila Prabhupada has given us put, puts us on equal footing right away. Mm. All we need to follow is process systematically and then chant the minimum number of rounds, follow the four regulatory principles. And at a certain point in time, the spiritual master gives the Arinam Diksha and then further down the line, the Brahmanical Diksha and so on. And we we are systematically being trained and that mercy is for flowing through in this Sampradaya, especially through Srila Prabhupada. So even though we are not born in a Brahminical family, we still have an equal opportunity to get trained and get qualified and reach that stage. Yes. Yeah. By the way, did you see the video of uh, him closing down the Tirupati temple? Yeah. Balaji temple has after 2,500 years. <laughs> Amazing. That just as an aside. But yes, that's, that's uh, the potency that, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu especially has given, um, you know, through the Shikshastik and through the chanting of the holy names. But now it's important, now it's imperative for us to become worthy, to take advantage of that process. Yeah, thank you. Okay, shall we move on? Uh, actually, I gave the, the next verse is a verse that I want to talk about, 36. Uh, so uh, now we hear about his renunciation. Uh, while enjoying his material opulences with full strength and influence, Maharaj Priyabrata once began to consider that although he had fully surrendered to the great saint Narada and was actually on the path of Krishna consciousness, he had somehow become again entangled in material activities. Thus his mind now became restless and he began to speak in the spirit of renunciation. And uh, it's, it's said elsewhere by one of the Acharyas that just that internally he was always always devoted and always very peaceful. Just externally he's speaking like this. So Prabhupada brings up a point which is so important but should not be misunderstood about what happens if we fall from the, if we take to Krishna consciousness and then fall from the path. And he quotes this uh, famous. Uh, verse from the fifth chapter of the first canto, one who has forsaken his material occupations to engage in the devotional service of the Lord may sometimes fall down while in an immature stage, yet there is no danger of his being unsuccessful. On the other hand, a non-devotee, though fully engaged in occupational duties, does not gain anything. If once, then, end of quote, if one somehow or other comes to the shelter of a great Vaishnava, takes to Krishna consciousness because of sentiment or realization, but in course of time falls down because of immature understanding, he's not actually fallen, for, he, for his having engaged in Krishna consciousness is a permanent asset. If one falls down, therefore, his progress might be checked for a certain time, but it will again become manifest at the opportune moment. Although Priyavrata Maharaj was serving according to the instructions of Narada Muni, uh, wait, although Priyavrata Maharaj was serving according to the instructions of Narada Muni meant for going back home back to Godhead, he returned to material affairs at the request of his father. 
In due course of time, however, his consciousness for serving Krishna reawakened by the grace of his spiritual master, Narada. It is as stated in Bhagavad Gita, Suchinam Shimatam Gehe Yoga Yoga Prashto Bijayate. One who falls down from the process of bhakti yoga is again offered the opulence of the demigods, and after enjoying such material opulence, he is given a chance to take birth in a noble family or a pure Brahmana family, uh, or of a pure Brahmana, or in a rich family, to be given the chance to revive his Krishna consciousness. This actually happened in the life of Priyavrata, and he is the most glorious example of this truth. Um, one second. So also I was thinking in, this, in the Bhagavatam, in the s- second chapter of the 10th canto, uh, it says, O Madhava, Supreme Personality of Godhead, Lord of the Goddess of Fortune, if devotees completely in love with you sometimes fall from the path of devotion, they do not fall like non-devotees, for you still protect them. Thus, they fearlessly traverse the heads of their opponents and continue to progress in devotional service. This is the demigod speaking, because right? it's the second chapter. Uh, they're praying to Krishna. And in that purport, Prabhupada says, devotees generally do not fall down, but circumstantially they do. But if circumstantially they do, the Lord, because of their strong attachment to him, gives them protection in all circumstances. Thus, even if devotees fall down, they are still strong enough to traverse the heads of their enemies. So so again, uh, uh, as Prabhupada says in the Apichet Sudaracharo purport in uh, chapter 9, verse 30, we shouldn't take advantage of this. Um, the emphasis is that it, I think we should take away from this is Krishna is very, very merciful. And he's very grateful. And so when we have done devotional service, he uh, feels indebted to us somehow. Uh, it's, it's, it's encouraging if we do have a slip in our Krishna consciousness, um, yet we shouldn't say, it, you know, take advantage of, 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 these, of these statements. Um, so it's that balance but very strongly said here. And in many places, also in the 11th Canto, chapter 20, I think verse 27 and 28, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if someone can find that, just, I'm pretty sure it's 11, 20, 27, and 28. Um, and I think the same thing is said there. Yes, so, so you know, this is again the mercy of Krishna and the power of bhakti. Right, bhakti, and we're going to hear about that in subsequent verses that hopefully we'll get to today. That bhakti is so powerful and, and because it's so attractive to Krishna that this is true, that even if one falls away from it, Krishna is so attracted by that bhakti of, our, uh, uh, of a devotee that he, he ultimately renders uh, us protection. Some thoughts on this? I think this verse seems to indicate how pure a devotee Maharaj Priyavrata is uh, because it doesn't even say, I mean, Prabhupada alludes to in the purport about fallen devotee, but it doesn't really say the verse that he fell down. He was just enjoying his opulences with full strength and influence, and, but he was so aware that 
this isn't the the optimum position for me or the optimum expectation for me as a devotee. He he began to regret, like we were talking about last week about regret. But he his regret is, wow, you know, I'm I'm using what is available to me, but this isn't the highest platform. Right, right. Yes, and so I think I think all of us when we read this about Priyavrata, we and I think in the back of my mind we think, well, yeah, he's not fallen. First of all, he was following Lord Brahma's order. He was following Swayambhuvaman's order. He was a great king. Uh, but still, from the the point of view of what sadhus normally do, he wasn't doing that kind of thing, and so he felt uh, fallen in that sense. Um, Thank you so much, Rashmi, for uh, finding this verse. It's such a, again, powerful. Having awakened faith, it's in the chat. Having awakened faith in the narrations of my glories, being disgusted with all material activities, knowing that all sense gratification leads to misery, but still being unable to renounce all sense enjoyment, my devotee should remain happy and worship me with great faith and conviction. Even though he is sometimes engaged in sense enjoyment, my devotee knows that all sense gratification leads to a miserable result and he sincerely repents such activities. Interesting, huh? That uh, we were talking about repenting last week, and then here it says he sincerely repents such activities. So we are putting our faith in Krishna's mercy, but we don't want to take advantage of it. Does that make sense? Any other thoughts on this? Okay. Well, then let's carry on hearing about the renunciation of Priyavrata Maharaj. The king thus began criticizing himself. Alas, how condemned I have become because of my sense gratification. I have fallen into material enjoyment, which is exactly like a covered well. I have had enough. I am not going to enjoy any more. Just see how I have become like a dancing monkey in the hands of my wife. Because of this, I am condemned. And I'll just read uh, briefly Prabhupada's point here. When we think about this example of Maharaj Priyavrata, we can just consider how degraded is the modern civilization of materialistic advancement. Modern so-called scientists and other materialists are very satisfied because they can construct great bridges, roads, and machines. But such activities are nothing compared to those of Maharaj Priyavrata. If Maharaj Priyavrata could condemn himself in spite of his wonderful activities, how condemned are, uh, we are in our so-called advancement of material civilization. So it's always kind of neat when Prabhupada puts things in perspective like that and kind of broadens our vision, right, of things. I, didn't, I don't know if you have any comments on that. We can move on otherwise, but if you have any thoughts on that, we can hear them while we start getting prepared for the next verse. Yeah, I had a comment. Okay. Well, just connected to our conversation last week, would you say that the king is showing some constructive kind of regret about his over-enjoyment? Maybe he thought he got a little bit too enjoyable. Well, Andy, you're the anti-regret guy, so what do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think maybe this is a possible constructive uh, example of regret, oh, okay. but I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think so, because it also leads to a change in behavior. I think that's one of the key things, right? If we just regret for regret's sake and don't do anything about it, 
I guess there's something good there. But real thing is that when it leads to a change and improvement in, in our uh, behavior, right? That makes sense? Uh, yeah, and so that happened here. And when you see, there's a pattern here, right? Because Priyavrata's uh, uh, father, Swayambhuvamana, did the same thing, right? He, he, gave, he uh, wanted to renounce the kingdom and take to being a sadhu. And so Priyavrata doing following in his father's footsteps. And his father was no ordinary father. So continuing his uh, statements, uh, by the grace of the Supreme Personality of God, Maharaj Priyavrata reawakened his senses. He divided all his earthly possessions among his obedient sons. He gave up everything, including his wife, with whom he had enjoyed so much sense gratification, and his great and opulent kingdom, and he completely renounced all attachment. His heart, having been cleansed, became a place of pastimes to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Thus, he was able to return to the path of Krishna consciousness, spiritual life, and resume the position he had attained by the grace of the great sage Narada. So also, I think, you know, this is kind of saying, this is, was a standard. That spiritual life was very much equated with sadhu life. Um, it, it, Traditionally, although not always, right? We hear about great kings who were devotees, and we even, you know, obviously we have the great example of Srila Bhakti Vinod Thakur, and even Prabhupada in his Grihastha life, and so many, so many, so many devotees in Iskand who are Grihastas or Vanaprastas and uh, are great saintly people. Uh, traditionally, though, the idea was, you know, renunciates uh, was really one of the main ways of being a great devotee. Uh, let's carry on. Text 39. There are many famous verses regarding Maharaj Priyavrata's activities. Here's one. No, quote, no one but the Supreme Personality of Godhead could do what Maharaj Priyavrata has done. Maharaj Priyavrata dissipated the darkness of night, and with the rims of his great chariot, he excavated seven oceans. To stop the quarreling among different Peoples, Maharaj Priyavrata marked boundaries at rivers and at the edges of mountains and forests so that no one would trespass upon another's property. And in the Purpur Prabhupada writes, this example set by Maharaj Priyavrata in marking of different states is still followed. As indicated here, different classes of men are destined to live in different areas. And therefore the boundaries of various tracts of land, which are described here as islands, should be defined by different rivers, forests, and hills. The modern idea of nationhood has gradually developed from the division made by Maharaj Priyavrata. And we do see that this in the world today, right? Often a river will um, divide different states, right? For example, um, we see that in New York and New Jersey, for example, the Hudson River. Uh, we see that yeah, anyway, in, in many places. Can anyone think of some others? I, I'm just trying to think offhand. Um, I'm thinking of the... Virginia, Maryland. Virginia, Maryland. Yeah. Virginia, Maryland. <laughs> Duh, right? <laughs> right. And I think uh, Kansas... We have most of the river. Yeah, Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas, I think is, are divided by a river. And, and a number of places uh, are like that. And I was thinking of this in terms of... Um, uh, Prabhupada used to like the phrase unity in diversity uh, and as a way of uh, in the fourth canto he talks about that if you recall 
about creating peace, having that, that, that idea of unity and diversity uh, is a way of having people not fight with each other. So here it's a saying that, um, that, this, that this, this diversity, this dividing, stop the quarreling amongst different people. Yet they all have the same king, so that's the unity, and yet there was different partitions within that that created the, uh, the um, diversity. So I think I was thinking that we could extrapolate from this that, that idea of unity in diversity. Any thoughts on that? Well, Prabhupada certainly emphasized that in his preaching. He uh, would so often uh, uh, be uh, transcendentally angry that uh, different nations were putting up roadblocks to devotees or they were doing this and that. And, and he was, you know, very firm in the idea that everything belongs to Krishna, every every piece of property you know, belongs to God. And, and and it's so fascinating to see here how the Bhagavatam is stating, oh, the divisions of people or the divisions of nations are completely natural. Uh, but, and then Prabhupada would step forward and say, what uh, these artificial constraints that the countries are putting up you know, uh, are anathema to God consciousness. They're uh, making people artificially separate and conditioning them. Right. So he said, saying different things at different times emphasize different points. Right. Here he's saying, well, yeah, Maharaj Priyavrata is the one who started it. <laughs> <laughs> like yes. He would also say that uh, although there's all these different flags of the United Nations, there hasn't been unity since the day United Nations was started, you can say things like that, yes. Other points? So then finishing this chapter, as a great follower and devotee of the sage Narada, Maharaj Priyabhata considered hellish the opulences he had achieved by dint of fruitive activities and mystic power, whether in the lower or heavenly planetary systems or in human society. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the fifth canto, first chapter of Srimad Bhagavatam entitled The Activities of Maharaj Priyavrata. So Priyavrata then had a son. His name was uh, uh, Agnira, uh, uh, Agnidra, Dra, Dra. and uh, it is said somewhere that although Priyavrata was obviously a great devotee of the Lord, uh, that he wasn't in perfect consciousness when he begot uh, Agnidra, and he attracted his soul into his into uh, his wife's womb, who was not um, obviously a great personality. His name is there's a whole chapter about him in the Bhagavatam, right? But he uh, had material desires, and we're going to hear about that. That he approaches, he um, he wants a son. And he wants a, a good son, and that that uh, and he approaches Lord Brahma, a demigod, for that. And then, interestingly, in the next chapter, his son Nabi, who was a very great son, and 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 at least from the Bhagavatam, we, it would, we can deduct that he was a more of a devotee and uh, more devoted than Agnidra. Um, 
He also prayed for some, but he went to the Supreme Lord for the son, not a demigod. Um, and then he, of course, got the Supreme Lord as a son. <laughs> uh, so that's just a little background information for. Uh, so Agnita, there's a, we're not going to cover. Uh, we're going to have to read. A, a, we're going to read through a number of verses um, after the first few verses that we'll talk about. It's a short, relatively short chapter, and a lot of the verses that we'll be reading through are about. Uh, King Agnidra's um, bewilderment when he saw the person who would become his future wife. So let's let just see. We're going to uh, verse 1 and then 5 we'll talk about. So Sukadeva Goswami continued. After his father Maharaj Priyavrata departed to follow the path of spiritual life by undergoing austerities, King Agnidra completely obeyed his order, strictly observing the principles of religion. So he wasn't just a terrible person, right? He was strictly observing the principles of religion. He gave full protection to the inhabitants of Jambudvip as if they were his own begotten son. So again, a great king also and a great ruler, clearly. Um, Prabhupada, there's one thing that I just wanted to comment on is he says these sinful activities, he's talking about the... Uh, uh, illicit sex, intoxication, animal killing, and gambling. These sinful activities are now very prominently manifest in India. He's writing this in the 70s, right? Although 100 years ago, these four principles of sinful life were strictly prohibited in the families of India. They have now been introduced into every Indian family. Therefore, they cannot follow religious principles. So maybe not every, but we, you know, and I, I just saw that, you know, living, I saw a big change from 12 years after Prabhupada wrote this, when I first went, uh, lived in India in 1989 to when I left in 2010, uh, how worse it became and how, in one sense, I thought the billboards, for example, in India were worse than the ones in America. Um, and, and especially with the, uh, the incoming of the internet and, um, and television shows from the West and this kind of, you know, just, inundation of other cultural norms, how it's, uh, how it's been a great challenge for, uh, for uh, India, although by Krishna's mercy, the, uh, the spreading of Krishna consciousness in, in India has gone quite well in many ways, uh, especially by the uh, great work of people like Gopal Krishna Maharaj and Jai Pataka Maharaj and others. So I just thought I'd, <laughs> that just jumped out at me. It's like, wow, Prabhupada wrote that in the 70s. <laughs> uh, what about today? Any thoughts on that? Maybe those who grew up in India and have seen a change or, or remember what your grandparents were like and how different uh, your grandparents were from the average 25-year-old uh, in India today? It's a day and night difference, Prabhu. Yeah. It's 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 it has degraded a lot. The culture was very strong and prominent even when I was growing up in the seventies, and even through the eighties it was a little better. But since the nineties, like it's been downhill all the way. Hmm. Even in South India. Yeah. Yeah. Because I saw North India was worse. My experience, Delhi. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, that UP, UP state, that area was like notorious for uh, 
breaking the laws uh, as if there is no tomorrow. <laughs> Anyone else? Hey, Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Devyana. What I have noticed is that it's more about like following the West in India. It's they followed the West. They took all the bad habits of the West and that's how they kind of adopted and um and also a, a corporate culture is another one that's actually degrading a lot of india as well because for example like intoxication is very normal thing if you're not drinking or anything then you are outcast or you're not you don't really belong to any group and uh, so that's that's what i have noticed is in india it's yeah really that's a good point because i would you know i, I used to have to go to these, some social functions with these uh, judges and lawyers, especially in Delhi, but actually all around the country because I traveled around and they were like so shocked when I didn't drink anything. And, <laughs> and, you know, I would even say, you know, does this salad have any onions in it? No, I'm sorry. I can't have it. You know, they were like, actually they kind of liked it. A Westerner, you know, you know, the whole combination there, but yes, uh, India, you know, there's some really good things in the West and in, and the tendency has been to take the bad things and leave aside the good things <laughs> like that. So yeah, this really has been quite a change. Anyone else? Shakshi, Ram, Hanuman, others? Mum, Mum? Uh, I would like to echo the devotees that Sal Prabhu, it's, it's, it's going worse. And if you are fortunate enough, and if you have a devotee association, there is some change, there is some chances that uh, you can get out of that mess, uh, but yeah. or else like there is no chance at all. Yeah, I guess the good thing is that we have, ISKCON has access. Like I just saw the Prime Minister had re, retweeted something from Gopal Krishnamaraj um, to like his, what is it, five crore followers on Twitter, whatever it is. Um, what, what is five crores? 50 million? Um, anyway, you know, so there's we have that access. But yes, anyway, Prabhupada's words really ring true, don't they, here? That's the point. <clears throat> so let's let's continue. Uh, verse two, going up to five, desiring to get a perfect son and become an inhabitant of Pitri Loka. So that's that's not it's not a it's a material desire. Of course, it's a much better desire than just wanting a big house or something. But that's you know gives us some hint. He didn't want to go back to God. He wanted to go to Pitri Loka. Maharaj Agnitra once worshipped Lord Brahma, the master of those in charge of material creation. He went to a valley of Mandara Hill, where the damsels of the heavenly planets come down to stroll. There he collected garden flowers and other necessary paraphernalia, and then engaged in severe austerities and worship. And just as an aside, um, of course, I think most people in this, uh, well, I'm not sure everyone, but I think most of the people, on, a lot of the people on this call are not going to have more children, but if you are, Prabhupada talks about the importance of the Garbhadam ceremony. He says, especially in this age of Kali, there are no Garbhadam ceremonies. Everyone enjoys sex with his wife like a cat or a dog. So if we are going to uh, attempt to beget children, it's very, very, very important to um, be in a devotional mindset while beginning that child. Why, why allow ourselves, you know, have fleeting moments of, of, in, of, you know, focus on enjoyment when we're, we're going to bring up that child for the next 20 years of our life. So to call a good soul into this world, uh, it's very, 
important to be in a devotional mindset. And Prabhupada therefore set there, there in the Vedas, there, there's all kinds of, uh, details of Garbhadam Sanskara, the, what to do before getting a child. But Prabhupada made it so powerful and simple to chant at least 50 rounds. And there's no minimum. That's a minimum. If you can go up to a hundred rounds, whatever, really be in a purified state of mind when, uh, trying to conceive a child. Very important. So let's move on. Understanding King Adnidra's desire, the first and most powerful created being of the universe, Lord Brahma, selected the best of the dancing girls in his assembly, whose name was Purvachiti, and, uh, and sent her to the king. Text 4. The Apsara, the Apsara, sent by Lord Brahma, began strolling in a beautiful park near the place where the king was meditating and worshipping. The park was beautiful because of its dense green foliage and golden creepers. There were pairs of varied birds, such as peacocks, and in the lake there were ducks and swans, all vibrating very sweet sounds. Thus, the park was magnificently beautiful because of the foliage, the clear water, the lotus flowers, and the sweet singing of various kinds of birds. As Purvachiti uh, passed by on the road in a very beautiful style and mood of her own, the pleasing ornaments on her ankles tingled with her every step. Although Prince Agnidra was controlling his senses, practicing yoga with half-opened eyes, he could see her with his lotus-like eyes, and when he heard the sweet tingling of her bangles, he opened his eyes slightly more and could see that she was just nearby. <laughs> and I just uh, picked up on this one sentence where Prabhupada writes, so-called yogis sometimes practice a fashionable form of yoga, by closing their eyes and meditating. But we have actually seen that such so-called yogis, we have actually seen such so-called yogis sleeping and snoring while meditating. And it just reminded me, I was on a, uh, a call the other day with about 100 people. I wasn't the presenter, but I, it was a colleague of mine, so I was just monitoring it. And they were doing one of these guided uh, mindful meditations you know, the whole thing was about dealing with stress during the COVID-19 epidemic, a pan pandemic. And so uh, she said, okay, you know, close your eyes and focus on your breathing. And <laughs> people really liked it, but there was one person that uh, you could hear, he didn't mute himself, right? You could just hear his snoring. And the snoring went on for the next half hour of the conference call. <laughs> just snoring away, snoring away. So. Uh, well, I was emphasizing that don't close your eyes completely <laughs> while meditating. And he wasn't so impressed often by, uh, by yoga as a hatha yoga or whatever, as a form of God realization. There are places in the Bhagavatam, uh, that, um, extol the glories of things like pranayama as a way of quieting the mind. And I think I've mentioned here before that, um, especially in this book um, by Sachinandan Swami, the living name, he mentions uh, how pranayam sometimes, doing some small pranayam for a few minutes before chanting can make the mind peaceful and calm to help us focus. He was, he's, he's very clear in the book that he's not emphasizing as a process uh, pranayama or other things, but as a, just as something that may help some of us at least in focusing on our chanting. Any thoughts on snoring or uh, 
pranayama or anything of that? Yeah, I had one general question. Okay. Uh, does it, can anybody give a quick translation of the king's name? I'm just wondering. It starts with the word fire, so it's fire. Draw, but does that I, have any important symbolism? That is a good question. I'm not sure. Does anyone know? Doesn't Nidra mean sleep? No, but this isn't that. This isn't. This is not uh, spelled right. And I may. Uh, that's. This is just. And I may even be pronouncing it wrong. Someone can check the Sanskrit and see it. Uh, D H R A Dra. It's it's fire with a D R H A following. Yeah. So it's fire something. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Does anyone know? Put down. Any Sanskrit scholars oh. here? Okay. <laughs> Look it up later. I can uh, ask, uh, you know, when I don't know something, what I usually do, I think I, you guys, you probably know, I uh, contact Bhanuswami. He's my go-to uh, person for things like this. Yeah. And sometimes if I have any questions about um, the Yoga Sutras, right? Oh, wait here, Jitesh just said something. Uh, coming from or belonging to the Agnid, it is the priest who kindles the fire. Wow, thank you. You see that in the chat? Very good. There you go. And uh, they just I looked it up me. too. Yeah, and I found it on Google. Very good. Thank you very much. Because they get kind of fiery here in this, I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot of heat. In I this mean, can I, just, can I just say that? He half opens his eyes, right? A, a little more than half, so he can yeah, see. That, that was a problem. Like, I mean, let's be brutally frank here. She's, and then he notices he's, she's right next to him. So she's coming on to him. I mean, I'll just say that. Yeah, that, well, That's yeah, what's happening. Yeah. That's what's happening here. Yes, of course, <laughs> in a much more pious way than um, at a bar in uh, downtown D.C. <laughs> because uh, she, who was she sent by? Lord Brahma, you know. So, yes. Yeah. And although he, you know, he's, he, in one sense, he's controlling his senses. He's been praying for this. And he went to the place, right? It says he went to the place where the heavenly damsels stroll. So, you know, hello, right? <laughs> there, there was a, it was meant to be, so to speak. But yes, but still, the, how it manifests for it meant to be is what this chapter describes a lot, right? Yeah. Okay. So, one more thing. Yes. Um, uh, in chapter 6 of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna also talks about controlling the mind and the senses through the Ashtanga Yoga process. Yeah. Yes. And Krishna says, by practice, what is it? By And renunciation, right? Yeah. Abhyas and Vairagya. Mm -hmm. one, can, uh, one can do it. Practice, you know, sadhana, sadhana means practice. And if you think about it, anything you want to do well, it takes practice. And, of course, God's blessings. Right? But, you know, definitely takes practice. I have a friend who uh, wasn't in, he's, he's 70 years old, devotee, wasn't in very good shape, but then got a, um, uh, what is it, like a health coach, you know, um, and now he can do 35 push-ups, 
And I said, oh, did that just happen overnight? He said, no. He said, it's take, you know, I had to practice that like over a year. And I went from like being able to do four to doing 35. You know, not that, not that that's the goal of life, but um, the idea that everything, anything worthwhile takes uh, practice and determination. And what to speak of chanting Hare Krishna without offense takes daily practice and determination. And of course, ultimately, the mercy of the Lord. And mom just wrote, Krishna concludes chapter six by saying that of all yogis, yes, right. So, so that's the, that's the, uh, the, he's, he's quoting a chapter, verse 47 of this six, yogi nam apisarisham. So of all yogis, the one who is a devotee is the highest of all. And that, of course, <clears throat> that verse is the prelude to the whole next six chapters, which focus on, on, on bhakti. Um, and that's the point that Maharaj is making in this book, right? That those things can be helpful, but because if they lead to bhakta, to yoginam apisarvisham, vadgatenantaratma. Thank you, Mom. All right, let us continue. Um, so that was five. Now we're going to read all the way from six to 22, okay? So... Um, I guess I'll, I was trying to decide whether to read it all, but uh, only because that's been our practice, I figure it, we should do that. Otherwise, I was thinking of just skipping ahead and having you read it for homework. But um, uh, Gurudas says this is a wonderful indication that in this verse, that bhakti yoga is superior to all forms of yoga. Yes. Okay, so seatbelts on while we read through this uh, very interesting and somewhat um, graphic experience. Ex, uh, explanation of how the two got together. Like a honeybee, the apsara uh, smelled uh, the like like a honeybee. The, the apsara smelled the beautiful and attractive flowers. She could attract the minds and visions of both humans and demigods by her playful movements, her shyness and humility, her glances, the very pleasing sounds that poured from her mouth as she spoke, and the motions of her limbs. By all these qualities, she op- she opened for Cupid who bears an arrow of flowers, a path of oral reception into the minds of men. When she spoke, nectar seemed to flow from her mouth. As she breathed, the bees, mad for the taste of her breath, tried to hover about her beautiful lotus-like eyes. Disturbed by the bees, she tried to move hastily, but as she raised her feet to walk quickly, her hair, the belt of her on her hips, and her breasts, which were like water jugs, also moved in a way that made her extremely beautiful and attractive. Indeed, she seemed to be making a path for the entrance of Cupid, who is most powerful. Therefore, the prince, completely subdued by seeing her, spoke to her as follows. The prince mistakenly addressed the Apsara, O best of saintly persons, who are you? Why are you on this hill? And, why do you, and what do you want to do? Are you one of the illusory potencies of the Supreme Personality of God? So you, he knew what Maya was. You seem to be carrying two bows without strings. What is the reason you carry these bows? Is it for some purpose of your own or is it for the sake of a friend? Perhaps you carry them to kill the mad animals in the forest. Then Agnidra observed the glancing eyes of Purvachita, uh, Purvachita and said, Chitti, did I say Chitta? Chitti. And said, my dear friend, you have two very beautiful arrows, namely your glancing eyes. Those arrows have feathers like the petals of a lotus flower. Although they have no shafts, they are very beautiful. 
and they have very sharp piercing points. They appear very peaceful, and thus it seems that they will not be shot at anyone. You must be loitering in this forest to shoot those arrows at someone, but I cannot understand whom. My intelligence is dull, and I cannot combat you. Indeed, no one can equal you in prowess, and therefore I pray that your prowess will be my good fortune. Seeing the bumblebees following Purvachiti, Maharaj Agnidra said, My dear Lord, the bumblebees surrounding your body are like disciples surrounding your worshipful self. They are incessantly chanting the mantras of the Samaveda and the Upanishads, thus offering prayers to you. Just as great sages resort to the branches of Vedic literatures, the bumblebees are enjoying the showers of flowers falling from your hair. O Brahmana, I can simply hear the tinkling of your ankle bells. Within those bells, tiri birds seem to be chirping among themselves. Although I do not see their forms, I can hear how they are chirping. When I look at your beautiful circular hips, I can see that they are the lovely color of kadamba flowers, and your waist is encircled by a belt of burning cinders. Indeed, you seem to have forgotten to dress yourself. Agnira then praised Purvachitsi's raised breasts. He said, my dear Brahmana, your waist is very thin, yet with great difficulty you are carefully carrying two horns, to which my eyes have become attracted. What is filling those two beautiful horns? You seem to have spread fragrant red powder among them, powder that is like the rising morning sun. Oh, most fortunate one, I beg to inquire where you have gotten this fragrant powder, uh, powder that is perfuming my ashrama, my place of residence. Oh, best friend, will you kindly show me the place where you reside? I cannot imagine how the residents of that place have gotten such wonderful bodily features as your raised trip, hip, uh, breasts, which agitate the mind and eyes of a person like me who sees them. Judging by the sweet speech and kind smiles of those residents, I think that their mouths must contain nectar. My dear friend, what do you eat to maintain your body? Because you are chewing betel, a pleasing scent is emanating from your mouth. This proves that you always eat the remnants of food offered to Vishnu. So it's not that he totally forgets God. Indeed, you must also be an expansion of Lord Vishnu's body. Well, not exactly. Your face is as beautiful as a pleasing lake. Your jeweled earrings resemble two brilliant sharks with unblinking eyes like those of Vishnu, and your own eyes resemble two restless fish. Simultaneously, therefore, two sharks and two restless fish are swimming in the lake of your face. Besides them, the white rows of your teeth seem like rows of very beautiful swans in the water, and your scattered hair resembles swarms of bumblebees following the beauty of your face. My mind is already restless, and by playing with a ball, moving at all, moving it all about with your lotus-like palm, you are also agitating my eyes. Your curling black hair is now scattered, but you are not attentive to arranging it. Are you not going to arrange it? Like a man attached to a woman, the most cunning wind is trying to take off your lower garment. Are you not mindful of it? Oh, best among those performing austerities, where did you get this wonderful beauty that dismantles the austerities performed by others? Where have you learned this art? What austerity have you undergone to achieve this beauty, my, my dear friend? I desire that you join me to perform austerity and penance, for it may be that the creator of the universe, Lord Brahma, being pleased with me, has sent you to become my wife. He got that right, right? Lord Brahma, who is worshipped by the Brahmanas, has very mercifully given you to me, and that is why I have met you. 
I do not want to give up your company for my mind and eyes are fixed upon you and cannot be drawn away. O woman with beautiful raised breasts, I am your follower. You may take me wherever you like uh, and your friends may also follow me. Sukadev Goswami continued, Maharaj Agnidra, whose intelligence was like that of a demigod, knew the art of flattering women to win them to his side. He therefore pleased that celestial girl with his lusty words and gained her favor. Attracted by the intelligence, learning, youth, beauty, behavior, opulence, and magnanimity of Agnidra, the king of Jambadweep uh, and the master of all heroes, uh, Purvachiti, lived with him for many thousands of years and luxuriously enjoyed both worldly and heavenly happiness. In the womb of Purvachiti Maharaj Agnidra, the best of kings, we got nine sons named Nabi, Kimpurusha, Haribarsha, uh, Lavrita, Ramyaka, uh, Hiranmaya, Kuru, Badrashva, and Ketumala. Purvachiti gave birth to these nine sons, one each year, but after they grew up, she left them at home and again approached Lord Brahma to worship him. And again, you know, it's very hard to apply a culture from the past to now. You, you could, you, it sounds like an abandoned parent, right? But that's certainly not the case in, in this regard. It's a different culture, a different time, and certainly those children were not neglected. Because of drinking the breast milk of their mother, the nine sons of Anigdra naturally had strong, well-built bodies. Their father gave them each a kingdom in a different part of Jambudweep. The kingdoms were named according to the names of the sun. Thus, the sons of Agnidra ruled the kingdoms they received from their father. Prabhupada in the purport talks about the importance of uh, breastfeeding children to give them strength. Text 22. After Purvachiti's departure, King Agnidra, his lusty desires not at all satisfied, always thought of her. Okay, so he didn't just renounce things like uh, his two predecessors in his family line, right? Where Priyavrata and Swayambhuvmana, they went to the forest and, and they performed austerities and were sadhus. No, he, he always thought of her even after she left. Therefore, in accordance with the Vedic injunctions, the king, after his death, was promoted to the same planet as his celestial wife. That planet, which is called Pitriloka, is where the Pitas, the father, the forefathers, live in great delight. Prabhupada writes in the purport, if one always thinks of something, he certainly gets a related body after death. Maharaj Agnidra was always thinking of Pitriloka, the place where his wife had returned. Therefore, after his death, he achieved that same planet probably to live with her again. Bhagavad Gita says, yam yam bhapi smaram bhavam tadyat kalevaram tam tam evaiti kuntaya sada tadbhava bhavita. Whatever state of being one remembers when he quits his body, that state he will attain without fail. We, we can naturally conclude that if we always think of Krishna or become fully Krishna conscious, we can be promoted to the planet of Goloka Vrindavan, where Krishna eternally lives. So this is our challenge to, um, and then there's more, Miriam has added more from spoken Sanskrit about the uh, adjective Agnidra, coming from or belonging to Agni, care, uh, care of the sacred fire, priest who kindles the fire, so all around uh, fire sacrifices. Thank you for that, Miriam. Um, 
so this is our daily or challenge or our moment-to-moment -moment challenge to practice devotional service by thinking of Krishna in a devotional way. We're, we're, we're practicing for the time of death, where this verse says that if we think of Krishna, we'll return to him. So it's, it's, uh, it's something, oh, here, someone else wants to be admitted. Okay, sorry. Um, it's something that we want to practice. So even right now, we're going to take like 30 seconds. 30 seconds is nothing, right? Uh, but I'm going to time us. And let's all just think of Krishna in some way, in a devotional way. If you want to meditate on Radha Madan Mohan, you want to meditate on your spiritual master, on Shiva Prabhupada, on, on, on Devotee Sangha, on the Holy Name, whatever. But meditate or think of Krishna and make sure we're doing it in a devotional way. Perhaps you can, one, one way to easily be devotional is to be grateful. Okay? So 30 seconds, starting now. Okay, 30 seconds up. Now you can stop thinking of Krishna. No. Uh, but now all we have to do, that was 30 seconds. All we have to do is like double that, is do that twice as long, and that's a minute. Uh, 60 minutes an hour, so 60 by 24, and then we're, we're home free. But uh, the reason I did that 30-second thing is that, we, you know, it's devotional service is so powerful. And even if we were in very material consciousness, we can snap out of it in a second by thinking of Krishna, being grateful to Krishna, thinking of his devotees, something like that. And you can actually get out of maya that quickly by just refocusing the mind. On, on Krishna. Now it's, you know, we know also that it's harder to do it from the modes of passion and ignorance, but it's still possible, just like that. Uh, um, what is it? It's uh, 1, Canto 1, Chapter 3, Text 43, I think. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's not the yeah, that is a famous verse, Krishna Swabhamo uh, Pagate. But that wasn't the uh maybe it's the next verse. Oh yes. In the very next verse, one three forty-four, Prabhupada says, um the secret of knowing the Bhagavatam is mentioned here. No one can give rapt attention who is not pure in mind. No one can be pure in mind who is not pure in action. No one can be pure in action who is not pure in eating, sleeping, fearing, and mating. But then he says, but somehow or other, if, one, if someone hears with rapt attention from the right person, at the very beginning, one can assuredly see Lord Sri Krishna in person in the pages of the Bhagavatam. So yes, so he's saying, right, you can't give rapt attention without being pure in mind. But then he says, okay, but still, somehow or other. So I take that as we can still, it's, it's obviously... We want to cultivate the mode of goodness and, and, and be clean and be brahminical and things like that, which is a great jumping point to Krishna consciousness. But still, if we're very much affected by the mode of passion or ignorance, we shouldn't use that as an excuse. We can still kind of spiritually snap out of it by just, like we just did 30 seconds, you know, by just taking the time to think of Krishna in gratefulness. Some thoughts on that or on this purport that we just read?
I had one thought about the names of uh, the sons of Agnidhara. It's mentioned Ilavrata. The Earth planet was previously called Ilavrata Varsha. And mm. then later on it became to be called Bharata Varsha. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes. So, and they were given different places to rule over, right? And that was the whole thing about dividing. Yeah. Or was that, that was Priyavrata's sons. So were you saying the son, Priyavrata's sons you were talking about? Or Agnidra? Agnidra's sons are named oh. Nabi. Right. So they also could be, it could have been divided into uh, ruling different places, one would assume. Thank you. Because in that, Text 21, it says that thus the sons of Agnidara ruled the kingdoms they received from their father. So uh-huh. He gave them different parts of the Jambudvip. Very good. And then the last verse names um, their wives. So Merudevi Prati Rupa, Ugra Dhamstri, Lata, Ramya, Shama, Nari, Badra, and Deva Viti. And that ends, we, can you believe it, that we just went through a whole chapter in like half an hour. That's a, that's, I think it's a world record for us. So let us start chapter three. And this is actually a short chapter, only 20 verses. Um, so like I said, one of the important contrasts here is that Agnidra's son, Nabi, was also one of his son, but he approached the Supreme Personality of God through, through his priests. Um, whereas Agnidra approached Brahma, so uh, a demigod. So we can see that there was a difference in, in the quality of the desires of these two great personalities. So we're going to discuss verses 2 and 3 first. So let us begin. Text 1. Sugadeva Goswami continued to speak. Maharaj Nabi the son of Agnidra, wished to have sons. So he also wanted sons. And therefore, he attentively began to offer prayers to worship the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Lord Vishnu, the master and enjoyer of all sacrifices. Maharaj Nabi's wife, Meru Devi, who had not given birth to any children at that time, also worshipped Lord Vishnu along with her husband. In the performance of sacrifice, there are seven transcendental means to obtain the mercy of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. One, by sacrificing valuable things or edibles. Two, by acting in terms of or in terms of place. Three, by acting in terms of time. Four, by offering hymns. Five, by going through the priests. Six, by offering gifts to the priests. And seven, uh, by observing the regulated principles. However, one cannot always obtain the supreme personality of God through this paraphernalia. Nonetheless, the Lord is affectionate to his devotee. Therefore, when Maharaj Nabi who was a devotee, worshipped and offered prayers to the Lord with great faith and devotion and with a pure, uncontaminated mind, superficially performing some yagna in the line of uh, pravargya, the kind kind supreme personality of Kata, due to his affection for his devotees, appeared before King Nabi in his unconquerable and captivating form with four hands. In this way, to fulfill the desires of his devotee, the Supreme Personality of God had manifested himself in his beautiful body before his devotee. This body pleases the mind and eyes of the devotees. And I 
put some emphasis on this word superficially performing. So yagyas, we're going to talk about that more in the next verse. Or no, in this verse, sorry, in this purport, Prabhupada writes, one can understand and see the supreme personality of God through the process of devotional service and not any other way. Although Maharaj Nabi performed prescribed duties and sacrifices, it should still be considered that the Lord appeared before him not due to his sacrifices, but because of his devotional service. So we've talked about this before. I really like this verse. Smart Tavya Satatam Vishnu Vismart Tavya Najatuchit Saraviti Nisheta Shur Etayor Eva Kinkar. That remembering Krishna and never forgiving him, that is the principle. And the details, all the vidi, all the do's and don'ts are kinkaras or servants to that principle. And then Prabhupada in uh, 1.5.17, Canto 1, Chapter 5, Verse 17, um, quotes these beautiful, two beautiful verses that, uh, again, illuminate this point. Uh, it begins with uh, Sadhya Vandana, right? The offering respects during the morning noon and evenings, the sandhyas. Uh, my evening, my, oh, then it goes, uh, my, oh, my evening prayer, all good unto you. Oh, my morning bath, I bid you goodbye. Not, again, not that he didn't take bath, but just doing it for ritualistic reasons. Oh, demigods and forefathers, please excuse me. I am unable to perform any more offerings for your pleasure. Now I have decided to free myself from all reactions to sin simply by remembering anywhere and everywhere the descendants of Yadu and the great enemy of Kansa, Lord Krishna. I think that is sufficient for me. So what is the use of further endeavors? And then Prabhupada again in the same purport quotes Madhavendra Puri, saying, let the sharp moralists accuse me of being illusioned. I don't mind. Experts in Vedic activities may slander me as being misled. Friends and relatives may call me frustrated. My brothers may call me a fool. The wealthy Mammonites may point me out as mad, and the learned philosophers may assert that I am much too proud. Still, my mind does not budge an inch from the determination to serve the lotus feet of Govinda, though I am un unable to do so. So, it, you know, it's putting in perspective those other parts of the Vedas that talk about performing ritualistic processes and the karmakanda section of the Vedas that performing sacrifices and things, not for Krishna's pleasure, but for material gain. And then even... Um, and then even within uh, you know, the, the devotional realm, um, focusing on other things other than the most powerful things, the Panch Anga Bhakti, associating with devotees, chanting the holy name, hearing the Bhagavatam, worshiping the deity, and either living in a holy place or making our home a holy place. Those are so powerful they can produce Bhava Bhakti, even in, in the neophyte, even in a Kanisha Adhikar. So, um, I, I, so I think it's, I think the point's pretty clear. We just read like three or four verses, right, uh, on this point. Um, and again, it's not that we necessarily neglect, for example, no, and, and, and you know, things like that, but, you know, any activity any activity done without bhakti, um, you know, doesn't have the same effect as even the simplest thing, offering Krishna a little cup of water. If it's done with devotion, Krishna says, asnami, 
I accept it. So again, this, this verse in the Bhagavatam that we're studying, and then the other verses that we spoke about, um, uh, make it clear that bhakti is what really moves Krishna. And, and we've talked about this also, that it's the, the definition of pure bhakti, anyabhilashita sunyam, karma anavritam. That anavritam means to cover. So our desire for loving Krishna should never be covered by karma and gan. We may even do some karmic organic things. We may offer some uh, pinda to our forefathers or, you know, do some rituals when a parent passes away or something like that. But our faith is in the bhakti, not in the rituals. And that's what that jnana karma anabritam. So some thoughts on that? Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Nandimukhi. Thank you very much. And I was just thinking about uh, there's a similar scenario in the pastime of Juva Maharaj when he performs severe austerity, but then at the end, it is uh, Lord Vishnu choose to, by, on, his, on his free will, to appear before Juva Maharaj. Thank you for that. Yes, very much, very much so, yeah. And even that, that even shows that pastime shows, wasn't it him uh, who then wanted to like do the same thing again? Okay, hey, it worked one time. And then the, you know, the, un, the uh, unembodied voice says, no, you know, of Krishna says, well, no, you're not. In other words, he tried to, he said, well, this formula worked once. So let me try this formula again. And, you know, form, formulas don't, don't always uh it's not what attracts Krishna. It's it's not that we, you know, circumambulated, uh, you know, the temple ten times, and the other someone else, someone else only did it three times. So we did we got three three point three percent more uh, times more mercy than they did. Um, it's really a question of the heart. So thank you for that, Nandimukhi. Uh, Jay says, does superficial mean that he offered the yagna in his mind? If so, can we perform deity worship from our mind too? Like bathe the deities, offer flowers, offer prasad. Okay, so no, I think that wasn't the way I read it. Um, when I read superficially, uh, the point was that he was going through the rituals, but he wasn't doing it in any karma kandic way or thinking that the yagyas in and of themselves were important, but rather the focusing on Krishna with devotion is important. But then to answer your other question, uh, one can do manasi manasa puja. If um, if required in the in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu nectar of devotion, I forget where they're quoting it from. They tell that beautiful story of the Brahmana who was very poor but was cooking the most opulent things for the Lord and cooked some sweet rice in his mind and wanted to put his finger in to see if it was too hot, and he burnt his finger. And Krishna or Lord Vishnu and Vaikuntha was smiling when he saw this. <laughs> Um, but also, let's say we are traveling. Let's say we have deities. Let's say we have a Govardhan Shila or Shaladam Shila. And we're, we're taking them with us, let's say, on a trip to India. And we're traveling through the, uh, the Turkish airport, right? So there's no way that we can set up everything for the puja and do everything. You can do that puja in your mind, right? And, uh, 
and that's possible. Or even that's what had to be done uh, a few days ago in Nagpur. The government closed the temple completely. No pujaris allowed. The, the, the deities weren't fed, nothing. Nothing happened for like two days because one of the devotees had returned from Vrindavan and had COVID-19 and he had been to the temple. Now the temple, now the, uh, the government has allowed, I think, two or four devotees to live on the property and uh, reinstate the puja. So then devotees had to do manasa puja for those, uh, those two days. And uh, so it can be done and it can be accepted. Um, uh, of course, it's certainly not <laughs> really acceptable, except obviously an extreme situation like this, uh, when one has installed deities in a temple where there's full puja going on, but one with one's personal deities, um, one could do manasa puja. That's a, a acceptable way. Is that? I hope that answers your question, Jay. Ram Hanuman says, "I was thinking about seven transcendental means, and I was thinking about two and three. Can you please talk about those two? Acting in terms of place uh, means holy place. Well, well." I, <laughs> Let's look at the Sanskrit real quick here. It's probably about two and three. Anyone can find it quicker than I can. What is the Sanskrit for time? And, oh, there it is. Color. Yeah, Desha and Color. Okay. Well, again, not having the commentaries of the previous Acharyas in front of me, uh, I'll still do my best to uh, uh, talk about two and three. So maybe what we were just talking about, uh, time and place, uh, about Manasapuja, um, or so, you know, we often say that uh, we apply the philosophy of Krishna consciousness to Desha Kala Patra, right? To time, place, and circumstance. And I use the word detail specifically because this ties in with the difference between a principle and a detail. Principles don't change. It doesn't matter what the time, the place, and the circumstances, they don't change. And details can change according to time, place, and circumstance. Um, so chanting Hare Krishna, we're not going to say, oh, now we're, we're going to, we've come up with a better mantra. That's a principle that we're not going to change, right? Um, how we chant, let's say we chant very loudly, our japa, when we're at home, we probably are going to adjust according to time, place, and circumstance if we're traveling in an airplane, right? Hare Krishna, we're probably not going to do that, right? So, so um, time and place... One way to understand that is we still apply the principle of bhakti, the principle of a devotion, according to whatever time and place we find ourselves in. So uh, I don't think the place necessarily means a holy place. I think it's more in terms of the situation that we find ourselves in, and we still practice uh, devotion in those different situations. I hope that helps Hanuman. Do you, Hanuman, let me know if you agree with that or you have a different, Ram Hanuman Prabhu, uh, if you have a different understanding. Uh, in terms of time, does it refer to Brahma Mahurta? Well, uh, okay, so good example, good question, Jitesh. So yes, generally, we, we, are, we are told, Prabhupada writes, that generally a devotee tries to rise by four in the morning and also um, wants to be careful to perform devotional service during the Brahma Mahurta. Like, for example, the Brahma Mahurta in our area in Potomac is uh, from 5.10 to 5.58 uh, today in my little uh, app here. Um, so then, 
Okay, so that may be the time. But let's say we're, we just traveled to India. And it's Brahma Mohurta back in America, but it's not, it, it's, uh, it's nighttime in India. So, so we adjust things according to the time and, and the place also. So yes, in terms of time, yes, there are, you know, things to do in the morning hours, like, you know, we chant our japa. So it could be, it could refer to in terms of time like that, but it also can be terms in terms of adjusting things according to, uh, the situation that we find ourselves in. Both may be there because there are prescriptions in the Shastra about what to do at different times of the day, right? Like we say, uh, right? That we think of the, uh, we, we meditate on the spiritual master during the, the different uh, uh, morning, noon, and evening. And we, uh, but then again, <laughs> we also read, right? The, uh, the uh, prayer, um, oh evening, oh my evening prayer, all good to you. Oh my morning bath, I bid you goodbye. <laughs> so uh, he focuses on on the bhakti like that. Uh, and Divyanand says, I was thinking that I was thinking that why there is not much description of Mah- King Nabi's devotional service and also the sages who helped him recite the mantras. Well. That's up to Vyasadeva. <laughs> um, but we do, we learn, we don't maybe hear about his devotional service, but we hear about his consciousness, right? Because, and, and I think it's important that the, the contrast between him and his father is pretty clear, right? Because he's worshiping Vishnu. His father is worshiping Brahma. His father wanted to go to Pitriloka. He wanted a son uh, like the Supreme Personality God, uh, Godhead. Um, so we do see his devotional service, you know, albeit briefly. And the sages we also see um, in terms of their prayers and their regret that we're going to hear about in a few minutes from now. Well, not in a few minutes now. Wow, time really just flew by. <laughs> Our time's pretty much up for the day. But we did get a lot done. We did get a lot done today, didn't we? We covered a chapter and a half between uh, we finished chapter one and started chapter two. So then for next week, we will continue on with uh, this chapter three and, and, and we'll get into chapter four. And soon we have the very wonderful, very wonderful uh, teachings of Lord Vishabdev in the fifth chapter to uh, which Prabhupada quoted many, many times. It's some very heavy preaching, but very wonderful and strong preaching. I hope all of you are remaining sane in, uh, in this crazy time that we're living in right now today. I made an excuse that I had to um, keep the battery of my car running, so I drove a little bit around Potomac. But the real thing was I just needed to have a little normalcy in my life to drive a car again and drive around. And of course, it was Sunday morning anyway, so the whole place was a ghost town. But... <laughs> uh, doing things like that. And as I often have joked, I probably, I've been married 30 years, but the last two and a half weeks, I've spent more time with my wife than I have in any other time in uh, my life. But somehow we are uh, surviving and there are so many different online things and sanghas that one can do. And of course, we all have Prabhupada's books and every lecture Prabhupada gave is at our fingertips on our computer uh, and I think tonight that Gorvani is doing Bhakti Vinod Bhajan someplace. And 
So there, there's, there's unlimited things uh, going on. And yes, thank you, Prabhus. Thank you so much. So nice to hear and chant together about Krishna. And uh, let us continue this uh, Krishna Katha next week. And may you be thinking of Krishna 24 hours a day. Krishna Matir Astu. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Prabhu. Thank you. Thank you, Prabhu. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.